Hello, I'm Shane Kingsbury. And I'm Gordon Harris. Welcome to Ancient Answers. This is a podcast where we think about and talk about modern issues that we face today and look to ancient civilizations that came before us for maybe some answers or at least an interesting conversation. That's right. And in some ways, it's surprising to realize that many things we deal with today were issues that were dealt by ancient peoples, uh, whether it's things like we're going to talk about today about sports or anything from politics to just what makes a decent human being. Mm-hmm. Uh, the sports aspect here, this is part two. Uh, we're going to continue our discussion regarding sort of the origin of the Olympics and a little bit about the Roman gladiatorial games, but we're going to expand it a little bit as well because we want to touch upon a couple of other ancient civilizations that have left behind legacies where sports, not as well documented, that is one of our great challenges today is we simply have an enormous abundance of Roman and Greek sources but we do also recognize there are some other civilizations that dealt with sports. Absolutely. Oh, every civilization dealt with sports. But like you said, it's a question of which records do we still have. That's right. I mean, <laughs> we know the Etruscans who lived in the sort of north-central area of Italy and were neighbors to the Romans during their rise in power from seven, about 700 B.C. to about uh, 280 B.C. Uh, we're, uh, we're not an Indo-European people. At least they didn't speak an Indo-European language. Mm-hmm. It's a little difficult to quite pick out. I know there's DNA today being worked on in some of the uh, tombs to find out from the bodies left behind, maybe where are their cultural origins. But the Romans must have had a great respect for it because we do know from their writings that the Etruscans, and remember, they're a different language, different ethnic group, different religious body. Mm-hmm. They're quite different from the Romans. They conducted series of funeral games. Mm-hmm. Certainly when anybody of prestige died in their society, a uh, king or someone of note, uh, there was often games thrown. And we are aware that the Romans for a period of time used to tisk the Etruscans <laughs> because they would conduct occasionally fights to the death. And mm-hmm. the Romans thought that was absolutely abhorrent. So <laughs> later they would change their mind on that. Yeah, just a little this bit. This <laughs> is during the, the early uh, Republic time and, and so on. Uh, but it set the seeds for the realization that if when you do study and you look around at least the ancient, let's say the European area and the surrounding areas around there particularly, yes, it looks like sports were conducted by the uh, all all the people, the folks that are the uh, the peoples today of Eastern Europe. We know that their ancestors. I mean, Turkey today is settled by people that originally came from roughly the Mongolian area. Mm-hmm. We know that their horse racing and other horse based athletics were a big part of their culture. Yeah. Uh, the Celts. Yeah, and then well. uh, much later than the period we're talking about now, but we know that Vikings played all kinds of games and they wrestled and boxed and unfortunately we don't have a lot of written records for them on why they played or if it was at festivals and whatnot, but we do know that they participated in activities and sporting events. And there would be some, some record that there would be tr- groups that would travel to conduct athletic events in other societies, not maybe directly related. Uh, in terms of the uh, you know Vikings, which came you know roughly around the year one thousand, give or take a bit one thousand uh, A.D., uh, their origins actually show that there was uh, contact with them and the and the Celts yep. and the Gauls, uh, which would be roughly France today, mm-hmm. uh, as early as around the year zero. Oh, so really? there was contact, and there would have been festivals where some athletic events held. Now they didn't have anywhere near the structure of rewarding. Uh, like I say, we have very little writing that has come down there. However, there are, there's encouragement today that in continuing archaeological research, we do find bits and pieces of that. I was surprised to find as well that ancient Persians, so roughly to the year uh, 300 BC, time when Alexandria 
Alexander the Great uh, was able to occupy and conquer the ancient Persian Empire. Uh, they conducted some sports as well. Oh, yeah? uh, there was certainly traveling involved because the one thing the, the Persian Empire had created is a series of very safe highways. Mm-hmm. Uh, in fact, their greatest achievement, or one of the greatest achievements, is the fact they had a highway that went from Turkey all the way to the border of China. Oh, wow. And it was basically safe to traverse the entire route because it was guarded for commercial activity. Mm-hmm. So people did travel. Uh, we are aware that certainly ancient Persia had what we would call the traveling circus, mm-hmm. you know, entertainment that would go around. We also understand that athletic events were held. However, there's not a lot of writings left by the Persians. No, and just overall, the Persians didn't seem to write a lot about themselves, and the only no. people that wrote about them were... Were the Greeks who didn't really like them that much. <laughs> they fought a couple wars together, so they weren't really uh, complimentary. That'd be like if the only source we had for World War II Germany was Russia. <laughs> that's kind of a good analogy, and so, you know, that's right. We've got to... But the interesting thing was that on, on a number of the uh, commentary and some of the carvings that are there, there seems to be what appears to be some sort of athletic-orientated de- depictions. Now, what the nature of the sports were not, we do know that horse racing and other sports with horses was a big deal. In fact, not that the Romans didn't have their own horse races with the chariot races and everything else, but the variety of horse athletic events is much more established in what we would call the outer line areas and certainly into the Germanically held tribe areas as well. Hmm. Now, sports go around the world. I found it was interesting to find out, of course, if we go to Mesoamerica. Oh, the Mesoamerican ball game? That's that right, the about? famous oh. ball game. It's, you know, in some ways, it's being resuscitated. I mean, they do hold these events currently now. They yeah. try to reconstruct a game that was played with a... Uh, well, <laughs> it was a, a nine-pound rubber ball. Yeah, nine-pound rubber ball. This is or, not soft, bouncy rubber. Or, this is hard rubber. Or a human skull. <laughs> That's right. And they would basically hip-kick it. Mm-hmm. Uh, didn't actually use their feet that much. Knees, thighs... The hips, the shoulders, not the hands, yeah. and their head, bouncing a ball, keeping it in the air live, and then trying to maneuver down as teams of up to, I, I understand from the reading I did, up to 20 uh, players mm-hmm. per team, if not more sometimes for yeah. celebration events, and then simply try to knock it into a stone hoop that's yeah. positioned between 8 and 10 feet high in the air. Yeah, there was there have been all kinds of iterations of that game over the, over the because it was played for thousands of years. When That's it's a right. game with a rubber ball, it's pretty simple. You can adapt as you go. Sometimes there's evidence to suggest they might have used curved sticks for some variations, so almost like a field hockey. Uh, they might have worn padding. Um, yeah, the rules seem to be a bit of a mix of like a netless volleyball, soccer sort of thing. And it's interesting you mentioned those stone hoops because. The, the, the playing area was would vary depending on where you were, and uh, the stone hoops at Chichen Itza were actually 20 feet off the ground. That's right. <laughs> I, saw, I, I saw that picture that those were the... Now, there was an assumption that the Chichen Itza site might have been kind of like their Super Bowl oh, okay. of yeah. sports. That would because sense, it was yeah. also one of the larger fields, mm-hmm. and we do know we have historical accounts that they had games sometimes as many as 50 warriors on each side. And wow. they made it clear they mention use the description of warrior as opposed to player. So we, I, we, I say, you know, the historians are assuming that there was a little bit more investment into this. Mm-hmm. Uh, was there professional training? Not likely. It probably was simply soldiers, military personnel that were recruited into the game. Mm-hmm. However, the legacy also that comes from this particular uh, Mayan origin game is that the losers got <laughs> sacrificed. <laughs> And the interesting thing is, even even that's up for debate because yes. I've read some sources, and 
And it does make sense, because picture this, you are a Mayan or Aztec god, Mesoamerican god, there's a game that's being performed in your honor with warriors from your people, and then the losers are being brought to your tent. No, I don't want the losers, I want the winners! <laughs> so there, there is some debate as to whether or not it was the losers or the winners that it, would be sacrificed. Because they felt that if they were sacrificed, they would appease the gods, mm -hmm. and that would be the case. Yeah, it's, it's probably not the best way to build team cohesion <laughs> on that aspect, but of course it was driven by a totally different mindset than what we would say come from the traditional... Uh, European, mostly in Middle Eastern origins, mm -hmm. which was an entertainment. A lot of what we understand the way the sports were played in the Mesoamerica and in, in, in the New World, uh, prior to the onset of the Europeans, was in fact they were religious. That's right. Spectacles. Yeah, because we we talked in our previous episode of sports uh, about the militaristic origins, and we uh, we unfortunately ran out of time before we get to the religious aspects of it. But that's it's very important to mention that. They they did both, and this Mesoamerican game seems to be a mix. Cause I I actually didn't realize that it was warriors that were selected to yeah. participate. They didn't have actually athletes in the sense that we saw it. We saw it as a chance for the warriors to find out who was the most blessed, the oh. most appointed by the various deities that surrounded the the, the culture. Uh, so now, very much very much a religious uh, a religious event then. Yes, very much so. It is interesting when one delves into what we perceive is the psychology of those societies. I mean, again, it's the same situation a little bit with the Persians. It's their enemy that wrote the story, and that, mm -hmm. unfortunately, would be the Spanish conquistadors and mm -hmm. the Spanish occupation as a colony. Uh, they're the ones who wrote it. They were not in inclined to write favorably about it because they wanted to pitch a case that these people needed to be converted. But it is interesting to realize that we do have a pretty good historical record that early ball games were played as early as 1600 B.C., uh, now, the games probably evolved, but there was certainly what we would call a version of soccer oh, yeah. that was played, probably before the design came in about an arena, but there was basically it was a ball-kicking game mm -hmm. that was played where there would, would seem to be run at some of the festivals and events. Mm -hmm. Again, the historical record is so piecemeal. But it's interesting to think about this, that in spite of the fact that sports played for different reasons mm -hmm. between, let's say, the East and the, and the West... Uh, well, actually, even uh, let's let's define it as East is the European and Mediterranean. The West would be, we'll say, the, the the Americas. The human beings seem to be, no matter where they are in the world, and this includes even the ancient Chinese cultures and mm -hmm. Asian cultures, prone to having some sort of athletic event for some sort of celebration reason. And so, the origins of our current athletics today in the Western world are not solely from the Greek or Roman, although mm -hmm. I think the, the structure has probably come to us clearer from them because we have more documentation. And of course, we have a culture in the West that adores, quite frankly, Greek and Roman history and, and thought and mm -hmm. philosophy. But it is the fact that the human being is interested in playing physical competitions. And, and I find it very interesting that when you look at cultures all over the world, so as I mentioned earlier, I didn't realize that the Mesoamerican ball game was played by warriors. I knew that it was a religious festival, but there's a lot of overlap between sport being uh, sport and warfare, sorry, both being tributes to various gods of cultures. And that's something that's seen all over the world, where whether it is an athletic event or whether it is warfare, 
it's seen as honoring gods and it'll be, yeah, this, I dedicate this victory to you and this competition is for you. And it's at these, it's at these religious festivals. And so, and that, that's the kind of theme that you see all over the world across many, many different cultures. Well, of course, in the pursuit of any kind of athletic event, we phrase all these sports as athletic events of some mm -hmm. nature. There always needs to be a place to hold them. That's true. There yeah. is, and it wasn't just you just ran them everywhere. Although there would be sometimes traveling athletic events, but of course it was the whole investment that was eventually made by states and individuals into what we would call arenas or stadiums. Yep. And that has its own interesting aspect to our world today because if there's one thing we deal with in our modern sports culture <laughs> is who's paying for the stadiums. <laughs> yeah. And that's that. That is an issue that we uh, we find a lot in modern sports. And we touched in our last episode about the salaries of players, but we never never talked about the facilities themselves. And it's it's amazing how expensive they can be. I mean, some of them you're looking at in the ballpark of a billion dollars, or not just, just today. Under, and that yeah, that's right. That's today. So uh, it's interesting when you look at uh, the Circus Maximus in Rome. It was the it, it in. As far as our history is concerned, from what we know, it was the largest athletic venue ever built. It could hold a quarter of a million people. Now, did the ancient Romans consider the Colosseum and its adjacent stadium, the Circus Maximus, as the same facility, or did they see them as separate facilities? Because they're actually adjacent to each other. Yeah, they are very close together, but they, they are two completely separate uh, separate venues. So the Circus Maximus was held, um, where that was where they would hold horse races and chariot racing, the Colosseum came along much later. the The Circus Maximus was one of the, it was very very early Roman history. We're talking seventh century BC, while Rome was still a monarchy before it became a republic. That the Circus Maximus or that area was at least being used, whereas the Colosseum was only built in the first century uh, of the current era. And the reason why the Colosseum was built where it was is because that was where Nero had built his lavish golden house, which after he died, the following emperor Vespasian decided to take that same property and turn it into something for the people to regain their favor. Uh, but they are two separate venues. So the, the Circus Maximus would hold a quarter of a million people and the Colosseum would hold another 50,000. That's right. And they were in, of course, they're in a building structure, a circular building structure that yeah. had, of course, when you go there today, you don't see it, but it actually had uh, a covering. Yeah, it, it Not had a, a full roof, but it was... It had an awning. An awning yeah. to, to cut down. Because, of course, a really hot day in Rome today is still hot. And <laughs> yeah. sometimes you want to keep the... Uh, Keep the, get, uh, the, the spectators from not passing out, <laughs> but uh, that's interesting. Well, the history of the Colosseum was it was built approximately in the year 70 AD. Yeah, 70 80 AD was when it was being constructed. And we know that it was in use until at least the fall of the, Rome, the western side of the Roman Empire around 470. Yeah. And what happened to it after that? So after that, it's... Uh... Well, Rome itself just kind of shrunk down and became far less of a power than it had been. Um, but the reason why the Colosseum has a very dilapidated look today is not because it fell apart, but because it was actually used as essentially a quarry. So whenever structures had to be rebuilt or refurbished, they just went to the Colosseum and just took whatever stone that they needed from that. I thought it was interesting. I found out that in the year 930 mm -hmm. AD, mm -hmm. so sort of what we call a medieval age, the population of the of the city of Rome proper was about 22,000 people. And, and yet they reported that at some time before that, the population had declined to less than 10,000. So if you think about it, and in fact, if you I haven't been to Rome, they actually have a museum there that shows paintings and stuff and illustrations of what they think the city looked like during this long period of time when the only occupants that were actually there 
would have been the Vatican, the, the oh, Roman really? Catholic Church. Oh, yeah, yeah, it was almost just basically an op- a, a, a headquarters, yeah. and, and therefore it, 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 it was completely dilapidated. I mean, mm-hmm. you literally had entire neighborhoods. It was kind of like where Detroit's going now. Oh, uh, that's an unfortunate comparison. It's an unfortunate one. comparison, but it is. It was simply a city that had lost its meaning to exist in any substantial way, and it was only later that subsequently people realized that there was still an opportunity there, and one of it was the rebuilding of the aqueducts, mm. because the aqueducts were the great, great achievement, really, of the ancient Romans, to bring all that water in to keep a population of a million people well hydrated. Yeah, there, there was more water flowing in and out of ancient Rome at its peak than modern-day New York City. There we go. That's an interesting fact. Yeah. <laughs> now, we talked about stadiums and arenas. Yes, mm-hmm. the Colosseum would be illiterate, but I was interested to find out that there was at least 55 other stadiums built during the Roman era mm-hmm. throughout their empire coverage area. Yep. And they, some of them were quite surprisingly, and some of them were quite surprisingly expensive investments. <laughs> That's right. There's a, uh, the Panathenaic Stadium is a... Well, it's, it's probably one that you've never heard of. It's in Athens. It was built in the mid-4th century BCE, uh, but it was refurbished in the 2nd century AD by a Roman senator when Greece was now a Roman province. And it has the distinction of being the only stadium in the world made entirely of marble. Entirely of marble. <laughs> 85 million tons of marble, which... To give a, a, a best guess, if we were to say that you know marble nowadays is about $300 per ton, which is probably on the conservative side, you're looking at over $25 billion in material alone to construct Imagine. that. And this was a, a, an arena of about two-thirds the size of the Colosseum. Yeah, you'd be looking at, I think it was about 30,000 seats somewhere in that ballpark. Interesting. And yet it would cost $25 billion of our money <laughs> to today. today yeah. So there was, there was certainly money spent on that. We thought the uh, salaries were big there in the ancient days, but I <laughs> yeah. guess the arenas had some stuff. But of course, it became the, the pinnacle of social expression mm-hmm. was the fact that these games gave the Romans and the Roman citizens throughout their empire the sense that they had achieved something quite remarkable because they had gone beyond just subsistence living and farming and whatever the basis to keep yourself alive. Mm-hmm. They could indulge in a huge investments in something that we would say was didn't have the practical aspect we may see today. That's a judgment call. Mm-hmm. But it certainly had to them an emotional connection to their status. And one thing that I find very interesting is when you look at a lot of these ancient structures, so particularly the Colosseum and the Circus Maximus, um, they were both built by wealthy Roman citizens as gifts to the people. Sure, when I say gifts, I kind of mean bribery. Because there's a lot was, of that. <laughs> yeah, there was a, it, it was in order to gain political favor and gain popularity. Uh, but still, they were gifts to the people. There was no admission at the gate. People didn't have to pay to go to the Circus Maximus or to the Colosseum. Now, there were vendors inside, and there was fast food and souvenirs and all kinds of stuff, like any modern stadium. However, to go watch the spectacle, it was free. And they were given as gifts by prominent citizens to the people. And I find it interesting that nowadays, we've got stadiums and these athletic facilities that are built a great deal of the time, there's a large portion of that money is publicly funded. Our so taxes. It's tax money that's going into it that are then being bought out by private corporations in order to pad their pockets. And then they charge us for tickets. Exactly. And so. we all put money into it. I know, and we, 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 we produce this show out of Ontario, Canada. 
we have one of our best examples is in Toronto, just south of us, mm-hmm. when uh, many years ago they built what we called at that time the Sky Dome, a large outdoor... Which is a way better name than Rogers Centre. Yeah, I'm sorry, going Rogers. on record, right? That, that's, Sky Dome's amazing. I have a Rogers phone. I do like Rogers in many ways, but I, I will say Rogers, it didn't really work out very well because <laughs> the citizens of Ontario put in $400 million plus investment into that arena uh, and stadium only to have it sold to the private sector for around $100 million. So we'll, you'll check our website. We've got some details about that. Uh, my thought is I never got any free football game tickets or baseball <laughs> tickets to, for my tax dollars. I'm a little bit disappointed. I, I, I was born the year that this guy don't came out, so I never really had a chance. <laughs> but there's one difference between the ancients, uh, peoples, and us today is uh, sports is a big business. We appreciate everybody listening to our podcast. We're having fun. Mm-hmm. Uh, we want to be able to share with you some insights about the things we deal with today, in this case with sports, and how ancient peoples dealt with them, both the historical record, but also the way they saw things a little different from us. Mm-hmm. So I'm Gordon Harris. And I'm Shane Kingsbury. And thanks for listening to Ancient Answers. We'll catch you on the next episode. Mm-hmm.